Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz trumpeter Franco Ambrosetti. He was born in Lugano, Switzerland, and is the son of Flavio Ambrosetti, an alto saxophonist, band leader, and bebop pioneer in the European jazz scene in the 40s. He went to the University of Zurich, then moved to Basel, where he eventually earned a master's degree in economics. In 67, he had his American debut at the Monterey Jazz Fest with his father's quintet, and for over three decades, he has juggled between an intense professional activity in the music field and his role as the executive in the family business. He's a very interesting man, so please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Yeah, hi, Franco. Yeah. It's Joe Domino in the United States, Kansas City, Missouri. Yes, I can hear you. How are you, sir? Fine, thank you. Nice to hear you. Nice to talk to you, sir. Thank you for taking a minute out for me today. No problem, no problem. It's a pleasure. So, I'm going to go ahead and start off here and ask you, what has been going on with you lately? Well, uh, I just was in New York not long ago. Uh, toward the end of January, I did record for my 75th birthday, which was a kind of party at a two-system studio in Brooklyn, and I had a huge band. I mean, uh, of course, not all together, but uh, all the friends that uh, have been, uh, in a way or another, uh, near uh, my my career in, in, in those many years, uh, were there. Uh, so it was, uh, I start to name them. We had um, uh, Kenny Barron, we had um, uh, Buster Williams, uh, Sterling Carrington, as well as um, Jack DeJohnette, they were also playing a duet together. And um, then I had Randy Brecker, um, John Schofield, um, my son, Greg Osby, and myself. That's, uh, that's about it. I had two more uh, Italian pianists. They came on purpose. For the, I mean, they were in New York, but they were coming into the studio on purpose for that, and this is Dada Moroni and uh, Antonio Farao. But I forgot one. I forgot Rui Kane, who is also playing one <laughs> song on that uh, on that album that will be released in, uh, I guess, in summer. Right on. That's perfect, man. That sounds like a great trip. Talk to me about your childhood in Lugano, Switzerland, growing up. Your, your father, Flavio, was a very noted musician, yeah, band leader, bebop pioneer. Talk to me about growing up and how you got interested and so into jazz. I grew up in a family where uh, the only music we were listening to was jazz. In fact, I had in my life two choices. Either hate jazz or become one of them. <laughs> and the second choice was easier for me because somehow I inherited some of this DNA that my father had, uh, which contains a lot of blues and jazz and uh, so it was easy for me to be to become a musician I never had uh, any problems in understanding anything on, of what concerned jazz and even trumpet in fact is a difficult instrument by itself uh, it's a, uh, I have a very good relationship with the trumpet too of course sometimes I have problems with my chops like anybody else uh, especially trumpeters but uh, generally speaking, it, it was an easy approach to me, and it was a natural way of uh, of growing up. I mean, I I remember Tut Silemans uh, when he was uh, departing for for the United States because he was he had been hired by George Shearing as a guitar player, of course. Uh, at that time, he wasn't playing. I mean, he was playing, but nobody knew that he was playing harmonica. 
<laughs> um, I remember that he was uh, amazed. I was 10 years old. And uh, he was uh, asking me, why don't you sing some, uh, some people? So I was singing all the Charlie Parker songs from uh, now the time to Opriba or whatever. I mean, I just knew them because for me it was the easiest thing in the world. And for him, who was from a different generation, he couldn't understand how, how, how it could be easy for, for a kid to, to sing something so complicated with. Like, like Charlie Parker's compositions. And for me, it was not complicated at all because it was what well, I was listening since I was born. <laughs> as okay. easy as that. It just went into my ears. That's it. Well, with that in mind, since it was so easy, was it a natural fit for you to be on stage when you started out in 61 with Romano Mussolini? Yeah. What, was, it easy, exactly. was it easy for you to get on stage? Was it natural? Yes, it was very natural. Besides the fact that I was very anxious and very nervous, and it was the first time on stage. Because one thing is being at home and playing uh, by yourself with records, and the other thing is uh, being suddenly in front of a lot of people that know what you're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then I was afraid. That was the first time. But uh, after the second note, it was already okay. So over your career, you've put out 26-plus albums. You've been featured on 50 as a special guest. you played with all kinds of people and evolved so much. How do you feel about your career? How have things gone for you? Well, I think I was a very happy uh, musician. Uh, I had a very happy life. I had a very happy in the sense that I had absolutely no problem at all in contacting all these great guys that, uh, that in fact, were professionals. I was, you know, as, as you probably know, I was also an industrialist and I graduated in, economic, in economics because uh, I have a master in economics. Yes, well, yes, uh, we, we had uh, companies and uh, uh, lending gears uh, for airplanes, uh, also McDonnell Douglas, American companies and others. And um, I, I became uh, eventually the CEO and... Uh, but, you know, it, the fact that I was working for my own company, uh, I mean, from the family company, it, it is uh, very easy then to get out and have, you know, the possibility to play. And, uh, of course, uh, not as every professional musician, I didn't have to play 250 concerts a year. I was playing some 30 or 40, that's all. And I still do the same, <laughs> even that now I sold all the companies and I'm basically playing only music, but... Uh, I think that uh, 30 to 40 concerts a year, uh, including some tours and recording, it's, it's enough. And uh, that's my, uh, let's say, my rhythm. And, and I go like this. But I could do it also then, when I was uh, responsible for, uh, for uh, managing the company. And uh, that's it. So I did only, um, well, yeah, I did two professions, basically. Uh, but it is possible to make two professions. I mean, there are lawyers there, they can play also an instrument. The problem is that most of the time they dedicate more more time to, to the profession because they have to earn money <laughs> and, uh, and then to music. And I dedicated a lot of time. I mean, I've been practicing every day all my life because trumpet is not an instrument that you can live by side. Uh, after, after a week you are gone I mean you have to start all over again so so uh, that's it so 
did playing music make you a better businessman? Did they both kind of play off of each other? Were you happier as a businessman being a musician? I think so. I definitely think so. Because basically, you know, the creativity is very important in both fields. Uh, business as well as music. Uh, being creative and having fantasy and, and being enthusiastic in what you do, both things. Uh, that's probably what takes you far. And... Um, uh, I think I became a better businessman because I was a jazz musician. And uh, probably I also became, not musically speaking, but I mean in the managing of a career, I became a better uh, jazz musician from that point of view, from, if you want, from the bureaucratic point of view. Of, uh, I became a better one because I had knowledge on how business goes. So... Over your career, you've been fortunate enough to play with the likes of Kenny Barron, uh, David mm -hmm. Sanchez, Michael Brecker, Phil Woods. What oh, yeah. What did you learn from these guys? They have a wealth of experience. What did you learn from Why them? Not? I learned a lot from them, especially from Mike Brecker. I, yeah, I always been. Uh, I mean, my first idol was of course Cliff Brown. Uh, then, uh, and I belong to that school still. Uh, but um, a little bit later, I found out that John Coltrane was a very interesting guy. And I, I started to copy all the links that he was doing, although on trumpet it's very difficult. The only guy who succeeded playing in this intervallic kind of uh, stuff was uh, Woody. Uh, Woody Shaw. And we were practicing together when he was living in Paris. Uh, this is one of the things I wanted to tell you before, but I forgot. At that time, in the 60s, between the end of the 50s and the, the beginning of the 60s, most of the best American uh, musicians were in Paris. Uh, Art Taylor, uh, Bud Powell, Kenny Clark, uh, um, Donald Byrd, uh, uh, you name it. I mean, the Dexter Gordon, uh, they were all there. Johnny Griffin, <laughs> they, they were all, they all left the States and somehow they were living in Paris. And of course for us it was like going uh, without paying any charge to the university every time you would play with them, you see. And then you grow. When you are 20, 21, 22, you learn fast. And, and that's the way I had uh, the chance to to know these people also because my father uh, knew them and my father was also the founder of the festival of Lugano. So all the musicians came to Lugano, they were in our house. Norman Grant had a house in Lugano for about five, six years, so most of the jazz musicians that were passing here were seeing either Norman or my father, and you know, it's, so it's like being part of the family without uh, efforts, that's it. Uh, later on, I, I, when I started, um, when, let's say, the, to do the big festivals, after I won the first prize in, uh, in Vienna as a trumpeter, where Randy became second and I was first. And we, we still are very good friends, uh, Randy Brecker and I. And uh, um, after, after that, uh, I started uh, frequenting uh, the big festivals like Berlin and so on. And all these guys like like John Schofield, when he was there, he was very young and I was young too. He wasn't known at all. I mean, you know, you meet these people when they are just starting or, or, or you know, just at the beginning of their career. Then they become the top stars, but you're still friends from them, and then from that time. So it's quite easy to call them, and, uh, and, and I mean, 
mean, if they appreciate the music you do, then they play with you. It's as simple as that. I'm really glad you brought up the the John Coltrane American connection to Europe. I've always been interested to ask those that live in Europe, why has it been throughout the history of jazz that Europe has been more, there's just been a bigger, bigger, more devout fan base and musicians want to go there. Why is that? Being someone that lives there in Europe and, and comes to America, why is that? They found in a way, in Paris especially at those times, there was this club called the Blue Note. It was uh, long before the records uh, company existed. And um, um, I think they lived better here. There was uh, no hassle being a black eye, you know, uh, all these things that in the 50s and 60s in the States probably made the difference. Not today anymore like it used to be, uh, at least not in New York. But uh, at that time, I think it was one of the reasons that, that took them here and they were treated very well, and uh, that's why Paris was really a center for uh, for for all these uh, Americans, and they stayed there for uh, many stayed there over, over time, like Kenny Drew and those guys. Where they were staying later on, they moved to Copenhagen or, or, or Stockholm, and I mean, they went to Scandinavia, which is a very open country. I mean, was at that time, you know. Now with the immigration, everything has been changing, but uh, at this time. It was like this, so I guess it is. It is really a life choice. Johnny Griffin, he had a castle in, in France, and uh, he was spending most of his time uh, there. And uh, uh, after having uh, had a, a very successful career and probably enough money, you could afford to stay in Paris. And, uh, and you know, since a lot of your friends are there too, so it was a kind of movement that. Uh, Lasted about ten years, and then uh, a couple of guys died, and some others went back to the states. And then, uh, since then, it never happened anymore. That so many important guys, musicians, uh, really, I mean, inventors that, that did jazz what it is today, um, that they were coming to Europe. That that didn't happen anymore. Some some guys are are still around here. They come and maybe they come and go. Keith Jarrett. He was for two, three years in Switzerland, but never as long as uh, as this um, this bunch of, of big stars uh, in the sixties. We were lucky. Absolutely. So let me ask you this: Why do you love jazz? I have no idea. It's part of my life. It's like uh, asking me why my heart beats. I don't know. It does. <laughs> <laughs> it's my life. It's my life. Yeah, absolutely. Hallelujah. So let me ask you this. You've had a, a great career. You've done so many things. You've performed in so many places and had such a long road. How do you want the world of jazz to remember you? I know you're not finished and you still perform and you're still doing it the right way, but what, how do you want the world of jazz to remember you and what you've done? Uh, it's a question I never asked myself. Hmm. Um, for for. The main reason is that whatever answer I would give, it wouldn't probably be the right one. Um, I, I just, you know, I just wanted to be accepted as a musician, uh, like many others that uh, try to do the the job as as good as it can. I mean, um, I, I'm a professional in music. I've been a professional also as a CEO, but uh, uh, you know, there is a big difference between America and uh, Europe. 
where America is uh, somehow more, much more free toward, or uh, yeah, toward somebody who does two professions. Yeah, if you do two professions and you go to the next board meeting and uh, you tell them that you are a jazz trumpeter, they look at you in a strange way. And the same thing goes uh, with the critics that look at you and say, well, this guy is, uh, is, I mean, this guy runs a company. I mean, how can he play trumpet? Uh, in the States, it's totally the, the opposite. If you have success in one of your fields, jazz, for instance, and at the same time you have, you have also success in the other field, which is business, you are a better person, not a worse one like here in Europe. And I have a very good example for that. Um, when I was playing um, at Bradley's for a whole week, in 1992 it was, or 93, something like this, I had to go to Missouri, I had to go to uh, St. Louis, uh, to the McDonald's Douglas, because I had to sign a contract that uh, for, for lending years for F-18s, that they are still around, <laughs> Uh, the ones we made for them were 400 uh, landing years. And uh, everybody knew uh, in the club where I was playing uh, at Bradley's. Everybody knew all the guys that were there. I was playing with other Moroni, but um, there was Big Goodwin on drums and uh, uh, Kenny Washington on... Uh, anyway, uh, everybody knew and the owner, the lady that owns, uh, I forgot her name, and she was a very nice person and apparently very stingy in a way. And uh, I asked if I could leave a little bit before instead of doing three sets, if I could do only two. And she said, yes, okay, because I had to get up early and go to uh, St. Louis. And she said, but you'll be here tomorrow at 9.30 when, when we start the first set. Yes, said, of course. When I came back, and everybody knew I was going to get a million dollars contract or not, I was, I was <laughs> going to sign, but it wasn't 100% sure. And when I came back and I had all my uh, uh, all my files with me, it was, uh, you know, like, like five kilos of paper with uh, terms and conditions and all these things that you have to sign in the United States because of the legal system that you have. <laughs> and I came into the club, they look at me and she open a bottle of champagne because she understood today that my business was successful. You see, this would never happen in Europe. Wow. People look at you in another way and say, oh, this guy, my God, this, why does he play trumpet? You see, here it's a different culture here. Uh, here, to be a considered a serious musician, you have to starve and you have to be poor. Otherwise, uh, if you drive a Ferrari, it's difficult that they consider you a serious position. All the mice had a Ferrari, yet two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can learn from America and those things a lot. That's interesting. My final question for you is this. Speaking of learning, what has music, being a musician and loving music, taught you about life? What, how has it benefited you? It's, uh, again, like asking me why do I breathe. It is... I, Jazz, music in general, because it's not only restricted to jazz. I had eight years of classical piano. Uh, then um, I still listen a lot to uh, classical music, like like every jazz musician. So, um, so it's not only jazz, but I practice jazz. I mean, I, I'm a jazz musician, and 
I wouldn't be able to play um, a human concerto for trumpet. I mean, uh, it, it takes too much time to learn this, to, to do something from Daniel's roots, and it should be playing it perfect. Uh, so it, this is not, I think improvisation is much more important, and that's the big uh, asset that jazz brought in the 20th century. Uh, and um, so, um, for me, music is just a part of my life, like the air, like uh, like the sun, like the sky, like like the world. I mean, I I, I can't think of myself without music. Uh, I'm always playing something in my head right now. So I was writing something when you just called. Um, music is always present in my, uh, and I think uh, whether whether it made me a better person or not, I don't know because I don't have a proof of the contrary. Maybe I would have been. I am sure I would have been a worse. Yeah, beautiful. Franco, thank you for taking some time out for me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in America, Switzerland, Italy, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Franco for his time, his story, and all of that music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for all things Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.